The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. I want you to turn with me to Luke uh, chapter 10. This morning we're going to see our joyful Savior here in this context. This is uh, Luke chapter 10. We've been going through the, the gospel of Luke and we're, begin, we're gonna begin reading this morning in verse 17, Luke 10, verse 17. Now, I want you to remember that back at the very first verse of this chapter, Jesus sent 70 out because he was heading north to south to go down to Jerusalem where he's gonna be arrested and tried and crucified. And on the way down, he sends 70 before him to go to every city he's going to come to and to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. That is, that the kingdom of God has drawn near because the king has drawn near. And these are the words that we have in verse 17, now that the 70 have gone and done their job, and probably as Jesus is going southward, he's meeting up with them, and finally the whole group comes together. And this is what we see here. Verse 17, the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. They're delighted with this. And he said to them, I have been watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. What he's talking about is the kingdom of God is overcoming the kingdom of Satan and people are being set free from their bondage. And in verse 19, behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. Those are common words used to describe demons, scorpions and serpents, because they want to do evil to God's people. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly. Jesus is rejoicing greatly. The the picture, the word picture here is of him getting almost giddy. He is so happy and so full of joy right at this moment. And it says, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and he said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for, for this way was well pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. They were all waiting for the Messiah to come. And yet these men are right in the midst of it, these 70 who have gone to be witnesses for him as he is heading south. Verse 25, and the lawyer, and a lawyer stood up and so forth. I'm gonna stop right there. Um, Notice something. There are three questions I want you to answer by looking at the text. The first is, why were the 70 so full of joy? Why were they joyful? Look at the verse. Look at verse 17. You don't have to shout out the answer, but just look at it. These are called observation questions. What's actually there in the text? So the first question is, why were the 70 so joyful? What was it? 
And then secondly, what should have been the basis of their joy, which Jesus tells them in verse 20? And then finally, why was Jesus so joyful? We'll look at that in verses 21 through 24. Why were the 70 so joyful? Well, they were so joyful because they had experienced the power of Christ over demons. And they saw demons submit to their authority. And people were delivered by these 70 who went out to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. But how had the kingdom come? If you look back at verse 9, it says, verse 8 says, Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat whatever is set before you and heal those who are sick and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. The reason that the kingdom of God is the way that the kingdom of God had come near was the power of the king being manifested right before their eyes. The kingdom of God had drawn near because the king had come into the world. And as his followers went out, these 70 went out, that number was chosen on purpose. That's the number of elders in Israel that God called. If you remember when Moses went up on the mountain, he told to bring 70 of the elders before him and he would speak to them as well as to Moses. And so it represents the people of God. These are representatives of the people of God. And they have gone out and they have manifested, they had seen the power of the kingdom manifested in people's lives. I want to put this in context. I'm going to give you a little uh, Bible tour. Turn back to Daniel. Okay, Daniel chapter 7. This is important. This is a key passage in the Old Testament that tells us about the kingdom of God that's going to come to earth. We sang a song this morning that was quoting the Lord's Prayer. Remember what Jesus told us to pray? He said, pray like this. In other words, this is the pattern of prayer. It's not that we quote this. I hope you're not just quoting this to God because he knows it. But what he wants you to do is pray according to this pattern. First, showing reverence for God, our Father in heaven, and responding to that, hallowed be thy name. That is, may your name be seen as glorious by those who know that we are your followers. I told you last week about Johnny uh, Erickson telling Francis Chan's wife that when she got, she became a paraplegic, she realized that the way she reacted to this was going to affect the way people thought about her God. It was going to affect the reputation of God in the eyes of people who saw her respond to this horrible situation. And you know what? It happens today. People watch us, and we claim to be followers of Christ. They see us go through very difficult things, and they want to see how we respond. Because that tells them something about who Christ is. And so, in Daniel, we have this wonderful passage in, verse, in chapter 7 of Daniel. This is a dream that, that God gives to Daniel. And so, if you'll, if you'll look at... I think I'll just go ahead and read the whole context. This begins in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, the children of Israel at this time are in Babylonian captivity. They are in Babylon, the greatest nation. It's, the, the, it's a worldwide empire that was basically the strongest nation in the world at this time, and they had taken, they had taken Israel captive and brought them into captivity in Babylon. And so he says, in the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. 
Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. These beasts, let me just... Let me just do this a little shorthand here. These beasts represent the leaders of world empires. That's what we're going to see as, we, as you read on and study this passage. You'll see that these four beasts represent the four world leaders, one after another, that control empires that control the whole world. The four beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion. And the way these world, these world uh, empires were these four. It was Babylon. Babylon. They were in Babylonian captivity. Babylon was the strongest uh, nation in the world. They were an empire. They controlled huge segments of the world. In fact, the whole world had to submit to them. Babylon, what followed Babylon was the Medo-Persians. That's the second beast as the leader of the Medo-Persians. The third was Greece. And the Grecian Empire is the third beast, is the ruler of the Grecian Empire. This is all prophetic, of course. It hadn't happened when he gave this, this uh, account. And then the fourth was Rome, the Roman Empire that ruled the world. And the Roman Empire is the, the fourth and the last in this, in this thing, except there's one more coming, which is a part of the prophecy. And notice this. The four, brace, the four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. Now this is prophetic of the leader of Babylon. This is what, exactly what happened to him. And behold, another beast, a second one, the, the leader of the, the Medo-Persians, resembling a bear and it was raised up on one side and three ribs were in the mouth of in, in its mouth between its teeth and thus they said to it arise and devour much meat now you can study this passage and see the significance of some of these statements i'm not going to do that for you and then verse six after this i kept looking and behold another one like a leopard which had on his back four wings as a bird like a beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the, in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong and it had large iron teeth. This is the Roman Empire. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet and it was different from all the other beasts that were before it and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold... Another horn, a little horn, he goes on through all this. Now go, go back, go on over, skip over to verse 13. This is where I want to get to. Verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. Guess what Jesus most often referred to himself as? The son of man. Because he understood he was the fulfillment of this prophecy. One like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days, that is the father in this context, and he was presented before him. And to him, to the son of man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. The king of glory. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. In other words, his is not going to end when he comes and reigns which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. And he seeks uh, some interpretation of this. Now, 
What's going on here is the introduction of the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, is the king that's going to rule over the kingdom of God on earth. When Jesus came into the world the first time, he came and he revealed himself to be the fulfillment of this passage. But it says in John chapter 1, he came unto his own people, he came into his own things rather, his creation, and his own people did not receive him. They didn't recognize him as the king of glory. For one thing, he didn't look like a king. He was very humble. And he wasn't dressed like a king, but he was the king of glory. How did he manifest that? He manifested by the by his power, his power to save and to heal and to raise the dead, to cast out demons. The reason there was so much of that during the ministry of Jesus, it was a manifestation of his power as the king of, of the kingdom of God. Now we're told, <clears throat> fast forward a little bit, we're told in the New Testament that when we got saved, we were transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. That's the present form of the kingdom. Christ is reigning from heaven, but he's coming again. And this is why we pray in the Lord's Prayer. It says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, let me just say something to you. When you pray that, you know what you're praying? You're praying, God, let your will be done in me and through me like it is in heaven. So that people can see the kingdom of God being manifested in my life. The way I live my life, I live under the headship of Jesus Christ. That's what you're praying. And when I pray that, that's what I'm praying. I'm asking God to do that in my life. That his kingdom would come by having his will done in my life. I want him to influence me and impact me to walk in a way that I'm walking in obedience to the will of Jesus Christ. That's the most important thing about us. We are the people of Christ. And notice what happens um, here in this, this passage in Daniel. We're told that this, this king is coming. But what I read you in, in Isaiah 61 is quoted by Jesus. In fact, we've already seen this in Luke. If you turn over to Luke in chapter 4... Is it okay to have you turn to different passages? I know some people get really tired turning those pages. But uh, chapter 4, verse 18, this is what Jesus says. He, he is quoting Isaiah 61, but notice where he stops. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He doesn't talk about judgment. And you know why, because we talked about it. Jesus didn't come into the world the first time to judge the world. He said, I came to save, not to judge, but he's coming a second time in which he will judge all those who refuse to receive his son as king. And so when Jesus quotes this here in, uh, in the synagogue in Nazareth, he stops right there because he has come into the world. This is who Isaiah 61 is talking about. This is the high king of heaven. But what Jesus tells us additionally is that uh, he has come to bind the strong man. 
Now, this is actually found in Matthew 12. I might as well have you turn everywhere. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verse 24. Listen to this. This is Jesus. Matthew 12, verse 24. When the Pharisees heard this, he had been, he had been casting demons out of people. It tells back in verse 22, then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he healed him so that the, man, the mute man spoke and saw. And the crowds were amazed and they were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Could this be the Messiah? But when the Pharisees heard them saying this, they said, they responded this way, this Man casts out demons only by Beelzebul. That's another name for Satan. He's just a satanic agent. And he's casting out demons because he's controlled by Satan, who's the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus could do that. Wouldn't that be uncomfortable to be hanging out with Jesus and he knew your thoughts? Your thoughts aren't that difficult to figure out, are they? Because people look at your face and your body movements and the words you're speaking, and they can kind of tell what your thoughts are. But Jesus could actually know exactly what you were thinking. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If, if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out, get this, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In the book of Hebrews, it tells us when Jesus came, that God validated who he was by signs and wonders and diverse miracles. That he demonstrated who he was by what he did. What he did was a manifestation of who he was, the king of glory. Jesus is a lot bigger than you realize, a lot bigger than I realize, because he's the king of glory. And he has power over all things. You know, as Christians, sometimes what happens to us, we get really upset with people in our lives who we don't think are living the way they should. They profess faith in Christ, but it seems like they're just living lackadaisically. And we actually think that we could get them to change. You know, if I had 10 minutes with them, I could change the way they're thinking. Well, you're wrong. The only one who can change the heart of a man is Jesus Christ. So what should you be doing? You should, first of all, be living an example before them. And secondly, you should be asking the only one in, in the whole universe who can change them. And that's the living Christ. So why did he send these 70 in front of him? Because same reason he sent you. Because you're his people. And because you're his people, you're his ambassadors. And you represent Jesus Christ. And guess what? When you profess Christ, when you confess that you're a follower of Jesus... People actually assume if, that, if that's true, then the way you live is a reflection of who Jesus Christ is. The way I live. Do I live in dependence upon him? Do I live in trust of him? Uh, do I even act like he exists? Because 
I am his follower. And so these 70 elders, these 70 men that he sent out were to go into these cities and announce that the king was coming. The gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, that the king has come and he's the one who can set us free. The second question was, what should have been the basis of their joy? If you notice, let me get back to Luke chapter 10. And if you notice what Jesus says, he says, you're rejoicing over the wrong thing. Verse 20, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. That'd be hard not to rejoice over, wouldn't it? If you had authority over the spirits. He says, but don't rejoice over that. There's something better you should rejoice over. Rejoice that your name, your names are recorded in heaven. But what in the world does that mean, that your names are recorded in heaven? It's true of every Christian. It simply is referring to the fact that you are citizens of heaven. You belong to Jesus Christ. In fact, it's shorthand for Ephesians chapter 1, where it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. Now, I don't care how you read that. You can't minimize that. That says that when you put faith in Christ, not only was your names written in heaven, but you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to begin to delineate them. I won't go through all them, but he says, God set his love on you before the foundation of the world. And he sent his son into the world to die for you so that he could bring you into fellowship with him to remove the barrier that was there. And so when he says your names are written in heaven is what you ought to boast about, that's all that you received by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Or like Romans chapter 8 says, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. And he goes on and enumerates all these things that you think would, would separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But he says nothing can separate you. In other words, when God starts something, he's going to finish it. I was sitting in a class many years ago a Christian ethics class in college, and, uh, which was many years ago. <laughs> and uh, this teacher was teaching, uh, it was a class on Christian ethics, and he was, he was talking about what happens when a person gets saved, how we're born again. He says, now there are some groups who teach that you can be born again again. And at first, it didn't make any sense to me what he was talking about, but then I realized that's exactly what I'd been taught. You could get saved, lose your salvation, and then you could regain it and lose it and regain it and lose it. I remember a lady telling me one time, you know, some people, you're just, they're just going to have to ride the altar to heaven. It's like they're going to keep getting saved over and over and over again. Well, the problem with that teaching is it so minimizes the greatness and glory and magnificence of the work of Christ for his people that we ought to be ashamed you see, what's great is who Jesus is, not who you are. And that's what he's telling these people, these 70. They went out and they found themselves doing supernatural things, casting out demons, healing people. He says, that's not what you should be rejoicing over. You should be rejoicing over not what you have done, but what has been done to you. That your names have been written in heaven, have been recorded in heaven. The salvation that you have is sure and complete. And some people, when they hear this, they think, man, if you teach that kind of thing, people are going to have license. They're going to live like the devil. No, not if they understand it. And not if they've really been saved. If the Spirit of God has come to live in you, it tells us 
that he knows how to sanctify people. Do you know how? No, you don't. And I don't. But the Spirit does. The Spirit knows how to conform people into the image of Christ. He knows how to empower them to live a life of obedience that is the happiest life that you could ever live. He's powerful. And the work that Jesus done, has done is so magnificent and so glorious that he's given you a salvation that can never end throughout all eternity. He's chosen you in him before the foundation of the world that you would become holy and blameless before him. How in the world could you ever become holy and blameless before God? Remember what Isaiah did when he found himself in the presence of God? And he, this was a godly young man. But when he came in the presence of God, in Isaiah 6, it says he fell on his face before God and he said, I'm an unholy man. I live among a people of unholy lips and I have unholy lips. And he repented. But guess what? The salvation that God has given you is so magnificent that he, through Christ, is making you holy and blameless before him. He did that when you believed on Christ. You, had a, you have a perfect standing before God. As he looks at you, he sees the holiness of Jesus wrapping you up. And you say, then why am I still sinning? That's probably another sermon, but the reason we still sin is that even though he has saved you fully and he has made you he has given you a standing before him that is holy and righteous before him, holy and without blame, and yet I still have the ability to disobey God. And if you've ever tried it, I could say, everyone here who's ever disobeyed God since you've been a Christian, raise your hand. We would all be lying if we didn't raise our hand. Of course. And what'd you find out? Well, you found out it's the most horrible way to live there is, to live in disobedience to the Savior who died for me and who gave me his Holy Spirit. For me to fight the Spirit in my life is the most wretched kind of life. And so what, what happens? I repent, and I run back to him. And he told us what we can do when we sin. He tells us in 1 John chapter 1, he says, hey, don't think that you can live uh, that you, you cannot say, I don't have any sin. Because if you do that, you're deceiving yourself. You're not deceiving your spouse. You're not deceiving the people who know you. You're just deceiving yourself. Yes, you still have sin until we are conformed to the image of Christ. We still have sin dwelling in us. Guess what? You probably, didn't even, you probably have no idea I'm like this, but I can be really selfish. <laughs> Yeah, we still have sin dwelling in us. Now, if I don't do the, you know, the filthy five or the nasty nine or whatever, we have a set of rules that if everybody does this, we think we're righteous. We don't smoke, we don't chew, we don't go with the girls that do, you know, that kind of thing. That, boy, I'm really righteous. No, that's not, that doesn't make you righteous. What makes you righteous is when God clothes you in the righteousness of his son. And you have a perfect standing before him. And he changes your heart so that you actually want to please him. And so for me to love you the way Christ loved you is a supernatural divine empowerment from God. How could I possibly do that? How could you possibly do that? 
You know, God tells husbands, I could have every husband stand up right now, but I'm not going to, so don't stand up. But uh, I could ask you, are you obeying the commandment that Jesus gave you? Love your wife with all your heart. Love your wife the way Christ loves the church. Well, the only way we could possibly do that is if the power of the Holy Spirit was manifested in our lives. Now, do we, do we ever fall into sin? Yes, that's why he goes on in that same passage in 1 John. He says, don't say you don't have sin and don't say your sin doesn't matter, but confess your sins. If you sin, confess your sins and he is faithful and righteous. Not that he's got this big heart and he can't help it, he's gonna forgive you. That's not what it says. It says he is faithful and righteous. He does the right thing. It is the right thing for God to forgive believers of their sins when they commit a sin, when they confess it, because it's based on the blood of Jesus Christ. Your sins have been paid for. And so when you turn to God and say, God, I confess to you that I withheld love from that brother or sister, or I did this selfish thing, I confess it to you. I agree with you. This is so unlike Christ. What does he do? Does he put you in the woodshed for a while? No, he doesn't. Now, you might might be put in the woodshed, but it's not after you confess. It's before you confess. If you're stubborn and you say, well, I've decided I'm just going to live like this the rest of my life. Oh, you got another thing coming. The hound of heaven (laughs) will catch you and he will bring you to repentance. In fact, the, the, my advice to you is do it the easy way, not the hard way. Flee to him. Confess your sin. Experience the glorious forgiveness of Christ. It's a wonderful thing to be restored to him, isn't it? And this is what he's promised us. Now, uh, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. So that's what your joy should be. Why are you joyful? You say, well, I'm not. Well, you need to get joyful because what God's done for you is so amazing that there's nothing that could possibly compare to it. And you should rejoice over that. Every time you, should, you pray, you should rejoice to the Father over the fact that he has given you this salvation through Christ. It's so much more than you ever thought possible. It's glorious. One last question was, why is Jesus so joyful? Look at these back in Luke 10. Look in verse 21 through 24. Notice what Jesus says. At this very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. I hate to tell you this, but this word here, he rejoiced greatly. It's one word, but it's translated rejoice greatly because of what the word means is, you're so happy you can't stop moving. It's like you're dancing for joy. And this is the strongest word in the New Testament for joy, for rejoicing, for expressing joy. That Jesus began to express joy. Now it doesn't tell us that he danced, but the word itself means that you're so happy you can't, you can't control yourself. It's overwhelming. People do it all the time. Watch, watch college football for 12 hours on Saturday. And you see people acting crazy as all get out. And all of you have had moments of great joy that you could hardly contain it. Telling somebody about it. I can remember uh, we had gone to, um, I'd gone to Talbot Seminary. We moved down south. I think I was 36 years old. We'd gone down to Finnish Seminary. We came back. 
after I finished and graduated. And Judy calls me one day. I'm 36 years old. No, I'm 37 now. She calls me up and she says, guess what? I said, what? I'm pregnant. I almost did a backflip. I was so happy. And you say, why were you happy? Because we were about to have a third child. It was overwhelming. It was glorious. We both just busted out laughing. This is ironic. We had no idea that God was going to give us another child. I told the church this child was planned before the foundation of the world. (laughs) Not by me. But it was a glorious, glorious gift from God. And if I could have done backflips, I would have, but I couldn't. But it it made you want to dance. And that's the word that's used here. Jesus is overwhelmed with joy of the Holy Spirit. And it says in the, in the Holy Spirit, and he says, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes were wise and intelligent. They were experts on the law. But they didn't get this. God didn't reveal this to them. They didn't understand it. And these 70 disciples saw it. And understood it. Yet, Father, this is the way was this way was well pleasing to you in your sight. All things have been handed over to me, Jesus said, by my Father. And no one knows who, who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Yeah, do you ever have trouble trying to bring up the subject of the gospel with people when you're talking to them? Let me give you a, a real, clear, real simple approach. I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. Is that okay? Because that's all we're doing. We're talking to people about Jesus. Because what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has shown us the Father. People have all kinds of opinions about God. Do any of you ever listen, you ever listen to this song, Good, Good Father? Uh, you don't admit it, do you? He's a good, good father. That's who he is, and I'm loved by him, and that's who I am. Who I am is I'm somebody who's loved by the father. And the father is the one who loves me. How did that happen? Jesus brought us to the father. And now I have a father in heaven who knows all about me, and he loves me anyway. Isn't that something? That he loves you in a way that you can't even measure? It's far beyond anything you could ever measure. And he did this, according to verse 22. He, he, uh, God revealed these things to his disciples in response to the son's desire. I got to show this to you. I'm sorry. Turn to John 10. John 10, this is past Luke, right? In John chapter 10, verse 9, I just want you, you gotta, you gotta listen to the words of Jesus. In John 10, verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door. And what he means by door, he means I'm the shepherd who watches over the sheep while they sleep. If anyone comes through me, he will be, if anyone comes into the sheepfold through me, he will be saved. If you can come to God through faith in Christ and you'll be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He's using the analogy of a shepherd watching over his sheep, but he says, if you're a sheep, you have access to the God of the universe. He says the thief comes only to steal and kill. 
and destroy. I come that they might have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now down a little further in verse 16, notice this. Jesus says to them, because Israel considered themselves to be God's sheep, just like they thought themselves to be God's vineyard, they were doing a lousy job of being that because they didn't have faith. But he says in verse 16, I have sheep, I have other sheep, which are not of this fold. And everybody says, hallelujah. You know why? Because he's talking about you. He has sheep that are not of this fold, that aren't Jewish. And if you're Jewish and you're a believer, you're part of the fold too. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. I lay down my life for the sheep. No one one takes it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. The Father sent him in the world to reconcile us to God. And that's exactly what he did. Now, Jesus says here, if you look over a little further, Verse 29, let me go back up to verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. That's a characteristic of the sheep that belong to Jesus Christ. They hear his voice. And you have this entire, this entire revelation here that tells you, the gospel, the four gospels tells you everything that he reminded the apostles to write down about what he said. And he says, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. What he means by out of his hand, he's not that he carries you around in his hand. This is a common expression of shepherd's hand was his authority over the sheep, his protection of the sheep, his leading of the sheep. And so he says, no one can pluck them out of my hand out of my control, out of my protection. Nobody can pluck a believer out of the protection of Jesus Christ. And for somebody to say, oh, I believe I could lose my salvation. I could turn against Christ. If you can turn against Christ, you've never turned to Christ. Because if you've ever turned to him, you are secure because of him, not you. Because of him. He's the one who secures us and makes us absolutely secure in his care. Then he says, my father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. The Jews picked up stones to stone him. Jesus answered them and said, I showed you many good works from the father. For which of these are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Jesus was claiming to be one with the father. And guess what? That's what he is. And because you bring, you being a man, make yourself out to be God. Well, they got it. That's exactly what was happening. This man, Jesus, who was born of Mary, is God. And he's able to save us. He's able to uh, protect us and to keep us. Now, in verses 23 and 24, back in uh, Luke uh, 10... In Luke 10, verses 23 and 24, 
He tells us that these people are white, these 70 are eyewitnesses of things that other people wanted to see, but they never saw. In other words, the kings and prophets in the Old Testament longed to see the days of the Messiah. They longed to see the days when the Messiah of God would come and that he would rule over his people and that he would bring deliverance to his people. But they never saw it. But he says, you've seen it. They're eyewitnesses of what all these people wanted to see. It was a glorious privilege. So what they see? Well, they saw the kingdom of God come near. Remember, I, when Jesus reads Isaiah 26 in the synagogue at Nazareth, he's saying, I, I, the one speaking, I am he. He's the Messiah. Matthew 12, he binds the strong man to let people go. How did you get saved? Well, Jesus bound the strong man so you could respond to his voice, and he called you to himself. But remember, in, back in chapter 9, we looked at this already, but the Mount of Transfiguration, what happened there on the Mount of Transfiguration is Jesus was unveiled before their eyes in all of his glory as a man and as the Son of Man of God. They saw Jesus glorified. They saw him shining like a great light, and they saw Elijah and Moses right there with him. They saw it with their own eyes. In fact, this is one of the reasons that we're absolutely convinced of all that Jesus had said to them. The kingdom of God has come near. Now on their mission, they were, they were the very instruments of the kingdom of God coming near. The, the kingdom came near by these 70 disciples praying for people and casting out demons and manifesting the power of God in given situations. And people saw the glory of the kingdom right before their eyes. Well, let me just apply it to us. We are ambassadors of Christ, and therefore we're bringers of the kingdom of God. I'm not saying you're going to perform miracles or you're going to cast out demons. That'd be nice, but I'm not saying that. I'm saying that when the, the, kingdom, is, the kingdom is coming and God's will is, is being fulfilled in you, and you bear witness to Christ, God is bringing the kingdom of God near to people. They're being exposed to the reality of who Christ is by you bearing witness to Christ. And that's what he's called you to do. You're ambassadors and you're bringers of the kingdom. We're going to sing a song now. Let me show you the words to it. I didn't plan this, uh, but Ryan picked this song. Ryan Peterson picked this song, and I didn't even know it, but I was looking through it. This is exactly, when you sing this, I want you to sing it with conviction. O great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. The King of glory is living in you. Own it all and reign supreme. That is, own all of me and reign supreme over every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. That is, that the Spirit of God wants to set you free from anything that holds you back from living wholeheartedly for the King of glory. You have loved and purchased me. Make me yours forevermore. Who owns you? Where are your names written anyway? Did you know that every believer, that your name is uttered in the third heaven in the presence of God? Probably often. The reason I know that is Jesus intercedes for you. And so he calls your name. 
You know, when you get on Facebook and you, you run into people that you haven't seen for a long, long time, and they call you by your name when you were in high school? I got one the other day from this girl, Pat Marsh, and she called me Frankie. <laughs> and she called herself Patsy. I, I'm sure she doesn't go by that, but it's like she's calling my name and she remembers me. Jesus is calling your name before the Father. And it wouldn't surprise me to know that the name that he calls you is a name of endearment to him because he saved you. This kind of love is so far beyond our ability to conceive or to measure that he's loved you this much. He's loved you so much he laid down his life for you. You know, when was the last time you died for anybody? There are people in your life that you love, aren't there? And if I asked you, would you die for them? I would hope you'd say, yeah. Because that's a manifestation of love. No greater love than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life for us. And so we want him to have full control of our lives. Did not know your love within, had no taste for heavenly joys. Then your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me. I didn't talk about this, but how in the world did these guys that went out talking about Jesus, how did they come to know this? Well, we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, the God who said, let light shine in darkness is the one who caused the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ to shine in your heart. That's how you got saved. It wasn't because the person sharing the gospel with you was so good at it or they had some technique that nobody else has. That's not why you got saved. You got saved because God shined a light into your heart and you saw the glory of God in the face of Christ and you believed. And so we want to live our lives as a result of that. Help me now to live a life that's dependent on your grace. Keep my heart and guard my soul from the evils of his grace. I need to stop. Let Let me pray and we're going to sing this song. I think, right? Is that right? Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for sending us. We are like little children, and yet you've given us an understanding of Christ. We don't tell it very well, but we can tell this story because it's come true in us. We've experienced it. And so we pray you'd motivate us to be ambassadors and bringers of the kingdom of God into people's lives. And as we sing now, may we sing from the heart, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.